Have you ever been told something wouldn't work? This is what was said about the Billiken. However, it was fortunate from the get-go, as it takes its name from a native Alaskan good luck charm. The Billiken set sail for Alaska in 1973, with the future of Trident Seafoods riding in it. Designed by noted Seattle naval architect B.F. Jensen, with considerable input from her 31-year-old owner and skipper, Chuck Bundrant, along with his chief engineer, Pat Alby. The vessel was not only the largest in the pot boat fleet, but it also had the biggest galley table. One that was large enough to seat all 20 crewmen assigned to the five staterooms on the main deck. Why the need for such a big boat and so many on the crew? The Billiken carried its own processing plant and the majority of the crew were there to help butcher, cook, pack, and freeze the crab as soon as they came aboard. It was a totally new concept to catch and process crab all aboard the same pot boat. As Bundrant recalled, they said it would never work. But it did, and it put Trident off to the races. The Billiken provided Bundrant and his crew with a boatload of independence from shore-based processors, allowing them to stay on the gear and work as long and as hard as they possibly could. Listen in to gain a little more insight into what life was like aboard the Billiken. Chapter 5 Life aboard the Billiken, the art of blowing knuckles. It wouldn't be accurate to say that Triton has been his only employer, but it's safe to say that Alaska manager Vic Scheibert has spent his entire career and much of his life under the Triton flag. It wasn't long after the Billiken was launched that Scheibert was hired aboard Alaska's first modern catcher processor as a processor. To those outside the industry, the term processor is easily misunderstood. A primary processor is a company that buys and processes raw fish delivered by fishermen. A secondary processor is a company that buys bulk processed seafood, such as headed and gutted salmon, or pollock that have been filleted and frozen into blocks, and subsequently cuts them into portions for sale or adds further value by smoking, saucing, battering, breading, pickling, or pre-cooking. A floating processor, known also as a floater, is a vessel or barge that takes raw fish deliveries from fishermen and performs primary processing at sea. A catcher processor is a vessel that harvests and processes its own catch. A processor can be a company, like Trident Seafoods, or the owner of the processing company, like Chuck Bundren. A processor can also be a retired Puget Sound ferry boat like the Kalakala, beached in a bay on Kodiak Island and filled with equipment to process crab and shrimp. There are processors and there are processors. When Vic Scheibert first hired on board as a processor aboard the Billiken, that kind of processor was either a kid out of school or a professional cannery worker who had labored a good part of his or her life on the production line watching kids like Scheibert come and go. Like most of the greenhorns who stuck a foot into the Alaska fishing industry, Scheibert thought he'd be able to extract himself once he'd worked a season or two and socked away some money. College wasn't cutting it, 
He wanted a break from classes. He needed to make money, and Alaska looked like it could deliver some quick cash and adventure to boot. I'd bought a Volkswagen Beetle and paid $600 for it, Scheibert began, recalling his personal tale of life and times aboard the Billiken. Nearly 40 years had passed since he'd first hopped over the rail and onto the deck. I'd borrowed the money from my dad, and I owed money for my student loans. Things weren't going very well with me paying off all of this stuff, and one of the guys I was rooming with at Western Washington State College in Bellingham was going up to Dutch Harbor. So I went down to Vita Foods in Seattle and applied for a job in Alaska. Finally, they called me, and I went up for the king crab season in 1974. I worked on the Vita processing vessel for a couple of days and then got transferred to the Viceroy, which was considered a bit more elite back then. It had a reputation for providing hard work and plenty of hours. I learned that Chuck used to run the Viceroy, and he'd already built the Billiken by this time. We'd heard it was coming, and when the Billiken pulled into Dutch Harbor, it was just the biggest boat you ever saw up there. The Billiken packed 135 pots, which was quite a few in those days. There was a guy in the Viceroy named Bill Howell who said he was going to go to work on the Billiken the following season. As it turned out, another guy butchering crab right next to me had worked on the Billiken for a while. His name was Bill too, and he was a relatively strange guy. He'd acquired one of the last Alaska land claims you could stake up on the Tanana River in the middle of Alaska, and as soon as the social order and institutions of government broke down, he was going to be sure to have all the guns and the food. The Billiken was tied up over at the Standard Oil Dock, so survivor Bill and I went over there one night in a snowstorm to see if we could get a job. I got hired, and the Billiken went out to ADAC that following season. Chuck was back in Seattle at the time, selling the king crab pack from the previous season, so we had a Norwegian captain named John Sean. I started out as a processor. Everybody just did meat back in those days. We took the crab meat out of the shells before packing it. Actually, there was quite an art to doing king crab meat. I think Lowell Wakefield was the guy who developed the specifications for it. You had to have so many whole leg pieces in there, you had to have so much white meat packed in and so much red meat, and you'd put ascorbic acid in it to preserve the color. The meat extraction system was actually a pretty clever little setup. To start out, the butcher would separate the sections from the body of the crab, and that was done up by the bow of the boat on the main deck. We had a big cooker called the horseshoe cooker. The hot water ran through a heat exchanger that was connected to the boiler, and the cooker had big stainless steel flights in it that would drag the crab through the hot water and that's how it got cooked. When the sections came out the back of the cooker, they would drop into a flume that ran down the side of the boat. The flume had raw seawater in it and that would cool the sections. Then the sections entered the upper process room, which was relatively small. The first portion of that room was for the cutters. They had small bandsaw blades cut into six to eight inch pieces that were mounted at a workstation and you could push the crab leg against the teeth of the blades and cut through the shoulder and all of that would go onto a conveyor belt. The next station was for the knuckle blowers. Those were the guys who extracted the meat out of the shoulder part. To accomplish this, we piped water into a nipple that went through a flat piece of metal. 
what you would do is take the crab shoulder apart and plug it into the nipple. Then you had a pedal-shaped valve that you would hit with your knee, and that would blow water through the nipple and blast the meat out of the shoulder. Then you had the leg rollers. Being a leg roller had its own challenges, not the least of which was accomplishing the job without crippling your hand. It took skill. We had these old washing machine type ringer units that were turning all the time, and you had to be extremely fast not only to keep pace with the line, but to protect yourself. There was one fellow we used to pick up at Atka named Nick Nazaroff. He was really fast with his hands. There's a technique where you would flip the leg so the point of the leg would just hit the roller and it would suck the leg into the gap. As the leg was sucked through, the meat would squirt out the fat open end of the leg on the front side of the roller and the shell would fall out the back side and go down a chute and over the side. The meat fell into another little trough and that went down below to the packing area. The feeder claw meat was extracted with water pressure similar to the knuckle. There are two claws on a king crab. The smaller one is the claw that the crab feeds itself with, the feeder claw. The bigger one is the claw they attack other crab with, the fighter claw. Back in those days, the king crab were really huge. And one of the toughest jobs on the processing line was to crack that claw. What you had was a dull, flat, fixed blade. First you took the tendon piece out of the claw and then you smashed the claw down on the blade and twisted it to break the top off so you could shake the meat out. Of course, nowadays, you'd never have one guy stand and do that for hours on end, but we did then. The joke about being a claw cracker was that the guy could be forced to do that job the whole season. And by the end of the season, his right hand and arm would be about three times the size of his left one, just like a king crab. Eventually, you had all of the meat traveling in a water chute flowing down below to the lower processing deck. Everything upstairs was devoted to getting the meat out of the shell, and this was similar to the other processing lines that were in Dutch Harbor, but we were doing this at sea, which is not the easiest thing to do. There were a lot of times when it was difficult to do our jobs, especially in rough weather. When you were downstairs processing, you'd feel like you were working inside a box that was getting tossed around while you were supposed to be performing the various operations on the crab. Down below, we had what we called long john pans. Each of them would hold 15 pounds of crab meat, and different people would pack different parts of the crab into them. If you were the new guy, you'd start by checking the shell meat for bones. That's what we call the small pieces of shell, and that's what I did when I first started. I was the bone picker. It was kind of humiliating, but I soon worked my way out of it. You filled the pans in a predetermined way, packing the legs and the bottom first. Then you'd add the shoulders, and as the pan traveled down the line, different pieces of meat would be added in. At the end, when the pan was full, we'd puddle it by adding a solution of fresh water mixed with ascorbic acid to hold the color and help it stay fresh in the freezer. From there, the pans would go into this freezer we had, and. It was a difficult operation to say the least, especially when the plate freezer would unload itself. It wasn't the sort of modern design where the freezer plates clamped down on the pans. The pans were made of galvanized steel and they'd fit loosely between the plates. Frequently, they'd come whistling out at you when the boat would take a roll, so you'd learn to get pretty good at dodging them. We tried all kinds of blocks and different things to hold them in there. 
was far from ideal, but we made it work. The incentive for doing this at sea aboard the Billiken versus working for Vita Foods in Dutch Harbor was the opportunity to go out and make more money. We were paid on a case basis, and it was an opportunity to work harder and get ahead rather than just work on an hourly basis. But it wasn't always guaranteed. I learned that the first season I went out to ADAC with John Shong. When the season was over, we stopped at Bellingham to unload the crab. I think I cleared $550, and I'd been gone for two and a half months. Everybody hears about the big bucks, but that season was awful. There were a ton of reasons that people came up with to explain it, like the nuclear test blast in Amchitka. There were a lot of theories, but fishing really dropped off, and we ended up doing a lot of custom processing for some of the other fishing vessels. They didn't want to sell their crab to the regular packers, and I can still remember why. The Dutch Harbor processors were offering 18 cents a pound, and the fishermen wanted 22 cents a pound. That was the price on the hoof for king crab. The shore-based processors wouldn't agree to pay 22 cents, so the owners of these crabbers asked Chuck if he'd put up some crab for them rather than selling it that cheap. So we did custom processing for them, along with what we caught ourselves. That kept us somewhat busy, but not busy enough to make our own season. When I told my friends I'd made $550 and I was going back again, they thought I was absolutely crazy. If you go to Alaska, they said, you're supposed to make a ton of money. I said, yeah, I know, but I think it's going to be different the next time, and it was. That next season, I was the production foreman, and I worked for the superintendent. When it was slow and we weren't processing, I used to go out and work on deck. The guys would get tired, so I'd go out and run the crane and haul pots. I learned how to coil and do other deck jobs. I still remember the first time I had to crawl down the side of the stack and onto the chains holding the pots together on deck. The boat's rolling around and I'm thinking, boy, you don't want to be letting go about now. That was a real eye-opener for me. Back in those days, I wasn't married and neither were most of the crew. Chuck was married along with Jerry Howard, the first mate, and Bill Howell. But most of the crew were single guys with girlfriends. Of course, we were all a lot younger then. I was 21 or 22. Chuck was 32 or 33 when he was running the boat. He seemed a lot older than me, but none of us were old guys. The old guys were the guys that worked at the canneries. The seasons were long, and we were gone a long time, and we were out at sea a long time. In 1975, the king crab season started July 15th. We left Seattle sometime in late June, and I don't think we got back until sometime close to Christmas. It wasn't what you'd call super hot fishing. If you were getting 25 to 30 crab to a pot back in those days, it was considered pretty good. Chuck was the skipper this time, and we all worked hard. He was trying his best to back up the factory. The factory was trying its best to stay ahead of him. We could process about 35,000 pounds a day, and we worked seven days a week sometimes for months on end, if there was a freighter available to come out and meet us at Port Moeller and bring fuel, water, bait, and groceries. One trip, I think we went in there to offload three times. By the time we got back to Dutch Harbor, it had been 97 days before we got off the boat. It wasn't easy. It was definitely tight quarters for everyone living on the Billiken, but 
that's the way it was. Down below we had four crew staterooms, and they each had four bunks in them, so we could house 16 people down there. There were two staterooms up above. The captain and the mate shared one room, and the chief engineer and the factory superintendent shared the other. Chuck had also put a Connex container on the back of the boat to provide extra living quarters. Roughly the size of a shipping container, the Connex was a portable housing unit outfitted with bunks and lockers for four additional crew members. It was located directly behind the pilot house, and it wasn't attached to the regular crew quarters. When fishing was slow, there really wasn't a lot for us processors to do, and of course, Chuck wasn't very happy about that. He'd been up there pulling pots and driving the boat, looking for crab to keep the processing plant busy. When he wasn't catching crab, we weren't processing crab, and nobody on the boat was making money. The pressure was on Chuck to find the crab, and he knew it. When he couldn't find them, he wasn't very happy with himself, or much else for that matter. At times like that, people tried their best to stay out of the wheelhouse, because if he did go up there, he'd find something more productive for you to do than just looking out the window. Jerry Malin, a guy I went to college with, lived in the Connex on the back of the Billiken. He worked a couple seasons early on when I was there. I had one of the rooms in the main cabin area down below. Living in the Connex was okay some of the time, but it could also be problematic. To get to it, you had to go through the pilot house, and that meant you had to go by Chuck. It was really crazy, but this buddy of mine, Malin, used to go out the aft hatch on the Billiken and crawl up the side of the boat when we were out at sea. It was the only way you could get to the Connex from the galley without having to go through the wheelhouse, especially when you had pots on the deck. One day, when he actually dared go through the wheelhouse, Chuck looked over at him and said, Malin, where in the hell have you been? I don't think I've seen you in three or four weeks. Jerry had a dry sense of humor, so he looked over at Chuck and said, Rumor has it, this isn't the place to be hanging out. Looking back, it was absolutely crazy for him to be crawling on the outside of the boat when we were out there in the middle of the ocean, but it made sense at the time. One thing's for certain, there were always problems to address. Problems when Chuck wasn't catching crab, and problems when he was. When fishing was hot, the processing crew was expected to keep up. When fishing was really hot, there was no way for them to keep pace with a catch, but the standing order was to keep pace anyway by going as fast as you could for as long as you could. The rules on the boat were set by the captain. Your work ethic was a big deal, and there was a lot of peer pressure to produce. People that didn't produce underwent what I used to call reality therapy, where some of them needed to be persuaded they should be a little bit more motivated. You didn't slow down for one guy who couldn't keep up. The more you produced, the more money everybody made, and that was just the way it was, Scheibert said. Clearly, Scheibert learned how to keep pace himself. It's funny, when you first start working and you're young like that, you think, oh my God, I've got to work a 12-hour shift. I remember when I got off the plane in Dutch Harbor, I thought, Christ, this is crazy. And that was nothing compared to the Billiken. I've never been in the military, but I'm struck by what people must go through when they really have adverse conditions to deal with. It's hard to imagine how much internal fortitude that takes. It changes your perspective over time. Not everyone who sides aboard a vessel like the Billiken finds what it takes to stick it out. Typically, there's no choice but to keep working until the trip is finished, because once a vessel sets a course for the fishing grounds, 
there's no place to get off until the trip is over. In the tight confines of a fishing vessel at sea, there's no place comfortable for a quitter. And whenever the subject of quitters comes up, Shibert and Bundrant like to share the story of a particular incident that's difficult to forget. We were out fishing king crab in 1979, Shibert began. Chuck was running the Bountiful and I was on the Billiken working as the mate. There were two guys working on the Bountiful as processors who wanted to quit. Quitting, back in those days, was something that you just didn't do, but these guys wanted to get off the boat. And Chuck wasn't going to take the boat all the way back to Akatan or Dutch Harbor just to let these guys off, but he wanted them off the boat too. At first, I begged these two guys not to quit, Bundant recalled. They were the first guys I ever lost. One of them said he could make just as much money selling shoes at Nordstrom, but there was no way you could make $200 a day selling shoes. No way. That's bullshit, and I told him that. The Billiken was almost full, and we were getting ready to go back to unload, Shibert continued. Chuck figured it would be better to put these two on the Billiken, and he wanted to get the quitters off his boat as soon as he could, since there was a bad seed risk in keeping them around. They might influence the others. So I got the two boats close together and put the guys, one at a time, into survival suits. He put a crab line around them and had them jump into the water. I can't remember whether they had buoy bags set up like crab pots or whether we got a line all the way over to the other boat, but they got transferred in the water. If they wanted to quit and go back to town, this is how they were going to go. After they were in the water, a few of the crewmen on the Bountiful started yelling, Shark! Shark! And you could say there was some other teasing as we pulled them in with the power block and got them up aboard the Billiken. It wasn't the first time we transferred people like that. Bill Howell had come over that way one time to help when we were having some cooker problems. But when these guys got back into town, the story changed, and they reported to the media that Chuck threw them over the side, and this other boat just happened to come by and pick them up as they were floating around in the Bering Sea. The stories implied that's what happened when you quit working for Trident. There was plenty of media splash, and I think it even made it into the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Actually, it was the safest way to do it. Trying to put two boats together in a rolling sea is pretty dangerous. The Coast Guard actually investigated the incident. They said it was an unusual transfer at sea, but they noted that the two guys were in survival suits and that we did have them hooked up to lines. Ironically, the negative press helped Bundrant later on when he was negotiating the sale of the Maxon shipyard in Tell City, Indiana, a shipyard that Bundrant had to buy in order to complete the construction of the Bountiful. These bankers were trying to jack me around, Bundrant recalled, but they thought I was a pretty tough guy after they read that I'd thrown these two guys over the side. They asked me what kind of a loan I wanted, and I said, I'd like one I can pay back. I'd been worried what people would think back there after the story came out, but I guess it was better for them to believe I was one tough son of a bitch, so I figured I'd just leave it that way. During this special holiday season, our thoughts turn gratefully to those who have made it all possible. It is in this spirit that we say thank you, Merry Christmas, and best wishes for the new year ahead. 
We hope that you enjoyed Chapter 5, Life Aboard the Billiken, The Art of Blowing Knuckles. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you can be the first to know when our next episode is released on Wednesday, January 1st. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deckload of dreams.